0: Last time on HI101, we talked about ancient astronomy as various civilizations struggled to put the movements of the stars into a meaningful framework, ending with the crystalline spheres put forth by the Greeks. Today, we'll pick up with that geocentric model as it spread across the world and eventually began to butt up against the scientific revolution. Let's begin. We are on HI one hundred and one with Kevin Miller. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. That's good. We uh, we just wrapped up talking about the fall of the golden age of Greek and Roman astronomy. Whoops! Shoot. What's he gonna do? Oh uh, well. <laughs> what what we're gonna do with this is we're gonna shift our our center of focus away from Europe for a while because they get real boring for like a thousand years.
1: <laughs> so boring! Europe, boo, boo. But Adam, who else has ideas about this stuff?
0: Lots of people have ideas about this <laughs> stuff. Yeah, it's it's funny actually. Um, one of the one of the one of the places that we have most exchange of ideas is astronomy in terms of like cross cultural stuff. Yeah. So when we talk about what comes after in in disparate cultures, other than you know really obvious cases like the like the Maya, the Greeks had done so much good work here and had created such reasonable models or, or reasonable approximations of, 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 the, uh, of the observable universe mm-hmm. that we have people working off of Greek astronomers throughout the world.
1: Yeah, it's a good place to start.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it went really well. And I mean, as much as the Greeks lamented that they couldn't quite hit the Babylonians' uh, level of accuracy, by the end of their sort of refinement of of their theories it was working well enough that that other cultures were kind of going hey well uh we can we can start from that and see if we can do okay
1: we don't have the babylonians but hey this is pretty good too
0: yeah exactly so i think india is actually a really good place to start go for it it just kind of kept trucking along like it, it it did fine after after the collapse of the roman empire <laughs> for obvious reasons <laughs> why shouldn't they <laughs> i i I know. I feel really dumb saying that. It it shouldn't need to be specified, and yet the focus on sort of the general flow of history mm-hmm. for people here in North America, and, and I would imagine by extension uh, Europe, because that's where we get all our history stuff from um, quote unquote the West. Yeah, all of that is so wrapped up in this sort of fiction of the of the you know these these three eras of history the classical, the the Dark Ages, and the and the Renaissance that even when we know perfectly well that that's not true even for europe Mm -hmm. uh and even when we're aware that western history isn't all of history we still kind of tend to fall into those traps i think unconsciously once in a while i think so and and the idea that um you know that india couldn't care less about the fact that the western roman empire had collapsed needs to be said once in a while i mean the eastern roman empire barely cared that the western roman empire collapsed so uh, it's it's really not the catastrophe that it's sometimes made out to be.
1: So we'll uh, check our Western privilege for a while.
0: <laughs> yeah, sounds good to me. By about 500 or so, uh, there was a there was an astronomer named Aryabhata that had developed a model of celestial movement that assumed that the Earth was rotating. Yeah. He found that he could better predict what was going on if the if the Earth was rotating at the center of all these spheres. Okay. Now. The, the, the spheres themselves still moved but it did a better job of, of predicting certain phenomena this is you know he he lived 476 to 550 this is directly after the collapse of the Roman Empire mm-hmm. this is when things are really not going well in Europe he's going hey maybe the earth is spinning on its axis and maybe the axis is tilted I, correct gold yeah. star for you <laughs> um, and it made for the most accurate predictions to date obviously so yeah, it's, it's going strong yeah. in other parts of the world. Was this
1: just a premise made out of a whole cloth or did he have any reason to suspect this was the case?
0: Well, I mean, it, it helps to uh, explain why the stars don't always rise in the same place um, because a tilted axis, um, a spinning earth on a tilted axis with a very slowly moving star field right. on, the, on the outer sphere helps to explain the, the movement of the stars throughout the year. Basically, they're looking for any ways theoretically that will better predict what they're seeing observationally. Okay. So he gave this one a shot, worked super well. So this
1: is a situation where this is based off the Greek system then? Mm Mm-hmm. So this is a situation where he's taking uh, what he perceived as a gap in in that teaching and finding a way to explain it. Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's correct. The Indian astronomers also came up with uh, ideas like hey, comets come back. They're not a one-off thing. They're not a fireball in the sky. They're not a portentous omen. Okay. Um, I don't know what they are exactly, but the same comets are uh, returning and they're moving on non-spherical paths. And they know they're the same ones? There's a theory that they were the same ones. They didn't start tracking them until the 10th century. And even then, the tracking is a little bit...
1: This, trickier yeah, this was my next question because mm-hmm. we talked in the previous episode about how um i, I had asked you if, if there was any way because ellipses or eclipses happen on patterns mm-hmm. they're difficult to perceive patterns but
0: yeah was but there any attempt made
1: out. to sort of figure that out yeah and and here we have sort of something that's happening on an even longer time span typically where yeah. comets are ro- they're rotating bodies are revolutionary bodies in our solar system rather yeah but you know often with like 70 plus years yeah in between appearances but they have now sort of decided that these are the same ones appearing like there's enough history here that they can track
0: that it's theoretical starting in the 6th century okay in the 10th century they start tracking them but like tracking comets is really tricky it's hard to tell when it's the same one sure but especially without the uh the use of of um telescopes to like accurately identify them yeah but the idea of comets as being something that isn't just a one-off mm-hmm. is first proposed theoretically in the 6th century.
1: And so between the 6th and the 10th century is when they have enough time that they can sort of observe
0: Even in the that? Ten- yeah, they, they start recording it after this. Okay. Um, and, and by the 10th century, they're fairly certain, although tracking is, is iffy at best.
1: Yeah, see, this is one of the cases I was talking about last episode too, where they have a theory and it takes them like 400 years to yeah. determine whether or not it's true.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even even Halley's Comet is known as like yeah the, the most dependable one. It's it's quite it's quite popular. Yeah, it was like seventy
1: eight years or something like that.
0: Uh, yeah, that that still is is you know it takes centuries before people realize that it's you know even after the discovery of of what comets are and what they're doing, uh, it takes a long time for them to realize that like no this is actually the same one coming back. There's a uh, there's an astronomer called uh, Bascara the uh, second lives eleven fourteen to eleven eighty five. Um, this guy calculated the length of the year to nine decimal places. Wow. They're getting very, very good at measuring some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Ilakantha Somayaji, 1444 to 1544, lived exactly a hundred years. Good work. Uh, developed a hybrid heliocentric model. This is something that's actually going to come back, come back uh, a little bit later in real time, a couple of decades, but yeah. in, in Europe, it's going to come back with uh tech O'Brien. But, somayaji does it first basically what he proposes is that all of the stuff that's going on here would make more sense with the following uh system yeah we have two systems of spheres one system is centered on the earth the moon and the sun rotate around the earth yes the other system of spheres is centered on the sun mercury venus mars jupiter saturn okay orbit around the sun All of this happens within the star field, which is centered on the Earth.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: Again, a little bit difficult to visualize from just saying it out loud.
1: I I think I get it.
0: (laughs) But what this allows for is a geocentric model that also better accounts for um, retrograde motion. Retrograde motion is always going to be the sticking point.
1: Kind of. It's sort of like our system now. If the Earth and Sun were to switch places basically where like you know the earth rotates around the sun but the moon rotates around the earth so yes. what you're saying here is that the sun rotates around the earth and everything else rotates around the sun yes
0: yep, that's correct okay there's also big things happening in the middle east as we alluded to earlier kind of at the the lowest point of the middle ages is is, is where the islamic world is seeing its its golden age of, of scientific progress mm-hmm. and it is a really interesting time in history for that region of the world because you have uh, extremely advanced mathematics being done. Uh, you have a, a lot of funding for the arts and for the sciences, an extremely wealthy and secular society. Kind of all the things that Islam gets a bad rap for these days. Yeah. Uh, it's the opposite of that. And, and it's, it's really the center of, of intellectual advancement. I would even be willing to say, in the world in this field, um, they're doing really interesting things with astronomy. And the thing is, with astronomy, some of the some of the developments that come up don't really sound that amazing, other than some of like the really big hits. Yeah. But I mean, even the fact that uh, the Islamic world at this point refocuses on observational astronomy over theoretical astronomy, the fact that they kind of go, <laughs> you know what, this 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 Plato guy, he's interesting, but Let's focus on what we're actually seeing here and try and find models that fit that rather than trying to cram what we're seeing into the platonic model. Yeah. Really important. Yes. Very 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 important. The
1: basis of science you might call it.
0: You could say that, I suppose, <laughs> if you want to get technical about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this this results in the first dedicated observatories, so people start actually, you know, building structures high up on mountains where it's nice and clear away from away from other structures so that they can more clearly see the night sky. Right. Um, without obstruction, without light pollution, all of that. Ever-growing star catalogs were cataloging more and more stars, still based on that Greek method that we talked about earlier, Right. Yep. Um, which means that all of this stuff is still very accessible to us today. In 964, uh, an astronomer named Abd al-Rahman al-Sufi wrote a book called Book of Fixed Stars. And in this book is contained the first recorded observation of the Andromeda galaxy. Oh, wow. He refers to it as a cloud. In the, in the book, it's it's uh, referred to as a cloud emanating from the mouth of a fish constellation, which is very poetic, Yeah, but it is the Andromeda Galaxy. He's the first guy to write down that object. Wow. Had no idea that it was the Andromeda Galaxy. No,
1: and we couldn't conceive of what a galaxy was or what it would mean, mean to even, see another.
0: <laughs> not even in the slightest. No, I mean, for a very long time, galaxies um, outside of our own are going to be conceived of basically in the same way as uh, intergalactic or intragalactic nebulas are. Mm-hmm. Um, they're basically seen as star clusters that, uh, as far as we could tell, were, were contained in the same kind of reference frame as the rest of the galaxy because we, we literally didn't have another one. You had another astronomer, uh, Abu Mahmoud al-Qujandi, who was able to compare the measurements of axial tilt from the Greeks okay. to current axial tilts. And recognize that there had been a, a, a slight change, determining that the axial tilt fluctuates. The wobble, which is, I mean, this is the 10th century have yeah. got this figured out. That's mind blowing to me.
1: Yeah, and I mean, for something that happens over the course of something like 27,000 years to recognize it with a few hundred years difference, mm-hmm. that's well, pretty big. Cl-
0: close to a thousand years difference, even but so, still but... that's that's 127 <laughs> yeah. that time. And it's stuff like this that kind of makes me you know, you look at it and it's like, no, this 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 science is alive and well, don't worry, we, we got this covered. Yeah. Still being advanced for sure. They developed the Astrolab at this point in time. Very um, important. An Astrolab is a, is a device that allows you to calculate the position of stars um, based on the time. It's it's usually a, a little flat disk that kind of has Uh, rotating pieces built into it it's similar in a lot of ways to a sextant and in in fact you could say that a sextant is a is a very specific type of astrolab right Um, but it's it's all about determining this the position of stars in comparison to the horizon you get developments of them that allow you to use them no matter what latitude you're at which is a big advancement right eventually you get to like spherical astrolabs it's 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 really incredible technology we're not going to get too deep into it, but it's really important in the calculation of positions of stars in the sky, uh, as accurately as possible. And the more accurately we can calculate the position, the better our, our, um, our records of, of what they're doing, uh, is, and the better our mathematics of, of, uh, how they behave. Perhaps. Oh, sure.
1: And I mean, super important for like terrestrial exploration as well, right? Like this is a primary form of navigation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not just at sea, which is where everyone kind of thinks of it. But, but
1: yeah, and literally I, anywhere. And I kind of get why you assume that because you can travel great distances at sea, and also you're gonna have you're not gonna have a mountain throwing off your yeah. You don't have space to go by. Yeah,
0: or, in a very literal definition of that term. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's a it's an incredibly important technology, and and uh, it sounds it sounds kind of boring, but I mean, just think about. Even when they were measuring the uh, circumference of the, of the Earth, um, Aristophanes was off by a few leagues or whatever he was using. I got to look that up at some point. He, he was off by a few units on land and it caused a, a, a difference of, of the equivalent of four to six thousand kilometers of variance. Uh, you need to be precise as possible with this stuff. Um, the further away something is, you know, for example, stars, yeah. the less um, room for error there is in your calculations before everything is completely just, thrown just off. way off. Jafar Muhammad ibn Musa ibn Shakir proposed that maybe the heavenly bodies were subject to the same physical laws as objects on Earth. <laughs> what a concept! I mean, it was revolutionary at the time yeah. because up until then, everything in the sky was uh, suspended in the ether and made of materials that were not of this world.
1: Yep, everything was. Well, it was it was classified in this hierarchical structure, like you say. It's 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 if it's not Earth, then it's above Earth. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. And well, I I mean, what this does is is creates a uh, for a time a unified theory of physics. Yeah, which important yeah kind of important i'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that one. <laughs> still still trying to still trying to get that one down again yeah. but it no it, it is important because he's he's saying well there's there's no reason that there needs to be two sets of rules mm-hmm. maybe there are ways that the sky interacts with something we're not entirely sure what even if it is made of something that we're not entirely sure what it is that doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, immune to the same laws that we are subject to right yeah,
1: it's a bold claim to say we live in the same physical universe as these other bodies and are probably subject to the same rules
0: mm-hmm. again obvious obvious concept being stated for the first time equals a revolutionary no, concept. it's a big one yep kind of a big deal all of this stuff occurs over you know hundreds of years there's tons of stuff that the that the islamic world puts together that Uh, you know, people up in Europe have no idea what's going on. (laughs) Dark
1: ages.
0: (laughs) Chinese astronomy tends to not really advance that much over this period of time. Their astronomy is not that dissimilar from what happens in Europe in that it becomes decoupled from not from the observational but it becomes decoupled from the theoretical. They care less about why things are doing what they're doing and they care more about what is actually happening up there because it becomes so like heavily rooted in divination and and uh you know what we would call astrology
1: yeah they, that
0: why it's doing what it's doing up there isn't as important as what
1: it means for us
0: yeah so yeah it, it kind of stalls in a similar way but in you know for, for exactly the opposite reasons <laughs> yep and then in the 16th century a guy named nicholas copernicus copernicus comes along and in 1543, the same year that he dies, mm-hmm. publishes De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium on the revolutions of the celestial orbs. And he says, hey, maybe everything isn't going around the earth after all. And Copernicus is an interesting dude. I mean, he got the best education that you could possibly hope for in uh, you know, Prussian Poland at the time. This guy is... Right. Yeah, he has a he has a Polish name. It's it's Nikolaj. You know they they Latinize all of these oh, um, sure. these great thinkers' names, um, and anything worth its salt in science is being published in Latin, right? So, right, right, right. Um, it's it's kind of a, a necessary evil. He was working on that treatise for minimum thirty years before it was published. Wow. Part of it was that he was trying to prove his calculations. <laughs> um, in an era where he's doing it himself manually part of it is that he was scared to put it out there this is a this is a controversial idea
1: Yeah, it's a game changer
0: his new model still involved crystalline spheres right but they weren't perfectly nested Mm -hmm. so they were offset and they weren't centered around the earth they were centered around the sun and the earth was on one of these spheres it still involved a lot of throwbacks to polemic astronomy there are still the uh the small circles rotating on the spheres to help deal with uh uh retrograde motion even though they're not really necessary anymore he right. just hadn't really realized uh, that the earth rotating around the sun solves that problem so oh, he I still see. had a built-in solution Yep, the orbs are still a physical thing in this model they are still perfectly circular. So there's a lot of, you know, platonic ideals still built into the Copernican model. Right, right. But even just the fact that he moved the earth... Uh,
1: Away from the center. <laughs>
0: yeah, is is is, is, revo- is revolutionary in and of itself.
1: That's one of those things where you, if you have sort of this marriage in this era of... You know, we're getting away from, in Europe, the, the science of the astronomy and more towards the metaphysics of it, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, we have a divine creator. He put us at the center of the universe. If as soon as we're not at the center of the universe anymore, yeah. it, it becomes kind of heretical.
0: It's it's very, very disruptive. Yeah, um, Martin Luther, heard about this guy. I heard of him. Um, which is actually a little bit surprising, to be honest.
1: <laughs> See the Martin Luther episode, True Believers? Yeah. <laughs>
0: you know not because I'm, I'm i'm trying to cast dispersions against martin luther but because somebody doing astronomy in in uh, polish prussia isn't necessarily making the most waves in society but martin luther heard about it and condemned it uh, viciously just hated the idea uh, for for all the reasons that you would expect it's there there are a number of verses in scripture that basically say the earth doesn't move yep and if, wrong again, if, if you're martin luther if you're martin luther you're sticking by that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that that really threw copernicus off i mean he's trying not to well i mean he's trying not to be burned at the stake partially but he's also not really trying to disrupt society here he's not entirely comfortable with his own conclusions in this matter which is kind of an interesting dichotomy Um, yeah
1: well i mean he he probably strongly believes that he's correct he's put these theories together over the course of three decades Mm -hmm. but doesn't want to deal with the black swan event of now this changes everything we know about literally everything
0: (laughs) yes um and i mean i think it speaks highly to his um devotion to the discipline that despite this conflict he's still going where his calculations are leading him rather than necessarily what um the status quo is telling him is correct yeah that's That's, uh, with
1: the slight asterisk of more or less doing it on his deathbed
0: yeah. I mean, that is certainly a compromise. And I mean, there were other compromises that were made. Um, he presented it like extremely delicately in this book, trying not to offend it, almost making it out to be like a theoretical thing,
1: Uh-oh. like
0: a like a let's consider for a moment that uh, rather than the Earth being the center <laughs> of the universe what if the sun was let's do this thought experiment
1: it solves every issue that we've ever had with the model of the universe it makes perfect sense but let's just set that aside maybe it's not real who knows anyway bye
0: (laughs) he also presented it so technically that you needed a very healthy base understanding of astronomy and mathematics to even really understand what it was he was saying in this book um which was a lot of people consider uh intentional deliberately obscured the the conclusions of the book through uh jargon essentially okay um in order to limit the number of people who realize what he's actually saying in all of this yeah yeah the whole deathbed thing was a it was a bit of a snafu i mean the guy he had helping him put together the publishing basically rewrote the entire forward to the book to basically be like anyways saying that anything that you know besides the earth being the center is heretical but let's consider this theoretical <laughs> stuff that he's saying in here um and signed Copernicus's name to it oh boy <laughs> um the book was also uh dedicated to the pope at the time which is a nice little touch <laughs> slap <laughs> no no I think it was trying to be like hey just like hey buddy here's, here's the, meet me half meet me halfway on this one here's I'm extending my hand
1: yeah it's not a you know hey I dedicate this book to Plato watch the and <laughs> not
0: quite not quite miller sorry <laughs> no it wasn't it wasn't that at all <laughs> no copernicus wasn't looking to make waves not at all no i know
1: but this wasn't his writing either.
0: well the, the guy who was helping him publish it realized that he wasn't the one about to die and he didn't want yeah, to be no attached kidding. to it um, like, all right publish my book peace the first printing of it sold less than three thousand copies which people have pointed to as though like it did bad
1: <laughs> how many people can read there how easy is it to print a book of that
0: <laughs> well let, let's point let's put it this way shakespeare's first folio s- uh, sold worse 50 years later yeah we're we're barely into the age of the printing press <laughs> yeah, i
1: was gonna say what does that mean
0: a <laughs> couple couple thousand copies is 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 not unreasonable no it, it went through a number of copies or a number of printings within the first couple of decades yeah what's
1: printing. what's the literacy rate around
0: that it's not great <laughs> it's not very good also it's how many Latin. professional astronomers do you think there were yeah uh no it's all fine I, I mean there was this whole book written about how badly it was uh it was circulated that you know it's just mm, nope ignore that one please yeah, doesn't matter but yeah that's that's a bell you can't unring and uh there were attempts, I mean, we, we spoke briefly about Tycho Brahe uh, mm-hmm. in, in the last section, attempting to reconcile the Copernican method with uh, the Ptolemaic system, and creating what we now call the Tychonic system, which is exactly the same as the system uh, proposed by Somayaji in, in, uh, in, in India.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But, you know, you haven't heard of Somayaji, and you have heard of Tycho Brahe, and so he gets called the Tychonic method. Yep. Which is too bad, but hey, I, I mean, there's there's nothing to in- indicate that he stole it. Uh, he seems to have developed it completely no, yeah, independently, I mean, so yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't lose any sleep over it or anything.
1: It's two people coming up with the, the same sort of set of facts independently. I mean, that's usually what we're looking for, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Peer I, review almost.
0: I mean, Tycho Brahe was an interesting man for... for I mean, for a lot of reasons, <laughs> not just because of his astronomy, but even even just his astronomy was really, really interesting. He he saw a supernova in 1572 that uh, convinced him that Aristotle's model couldn't possibly be true because uh, Aristotle proposed that the heavens were immutable. unchanging. They're immutable. They they can't. Nothing can change there. And a supernova blatantly contradicts that. Then in 1577, there was something called the Great Comet. It was just a really brilliant comet that a lot of people observed and it actually is responsible for a big push into uh, reviving astronomy getting more people interested yeah this would also uh uh, get johannes kepler interested in in astronomy uh he saw it when he was very very young he was six years old or something like that but it was what convinced him that he wanted to be an astronomer when he grew up Mm -hmm. which is great i think but Tycho Brahe was was the one who noted during the 1577 comet that the tail always faced away from the sun right wasn't sure what it meant uh, at that point we know now that that's uh the solar wind pushing debris off of the comet as it melts as it gets closer to uh the sun in orbit but you know still being the first one to observe it is still very important right he also noted that the comet's path would smash through any physical spheres true yeah which is a Big issue.
1: Yeah, it's it's coming at these crystalline spheres in a way that would uh, not really allow it to go that way. Like not, it's not it's not following the same circular path, right? No,
0: mm-hmm. no. It's 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 very clearly parabolic, if not elliptical, which is yeah. an issue. That being said, despite these very obvious kind of empirical observations, Brahe was very he was extremely devout and and really tried hard to fit all of this into the old framework of astronomy. Mm-hmm. And it, it results in some interesting things like the Tychonic system uh, with the hybrid heliocentric geocentric uh, uh, system. He also believed that the Earth was just fundamentally too heavy to move. Oh. Uh, he called it uh, he called it a lazy body. He believed that despite what. These Islamic scholars had been saying for the past 500 years that there was a a hierarchy of materials that things are made from and Mm -hmm. that the heavenly bodies are made from ether, which he described as being extremely uh, light, uh, extremely strong, fluid. And it's that the nature of uh, an ethereal body is to move in circles, whereas the nature of a terrestrial body is to stay at rest. And what he's doing is describing inertia, yeah. but lacking the system or, or lacking the framework with which to uh, reconcile uh, the the inertia of of um, the orbiting planets with the gravity of the Earth, um, which isn't going to happen for you know over a hundred years. Right.
1: Yeah, it feels like the Earth isn't moving. I'm standing on it. It's
0: perfectly fine. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I and, and again, that that also comes back to his faith and to the great chain of being and how neatly that explains everything. Yep. And people weren't willing to necessarily believe that the Earth was made of the same stuff as the stars.
1: Yeah, well, and this is what I was kind of getting at earlier. If you kind of make it sound like the Earth is you know, rotating around the sun the same as anything else, then it's the same as anything else, and it doesn't really fit into the same hierarchy, Mm -hmm. right? And same with the, you know, if physics works the same way on every body, Mm -hmm. then it's the same as everything else. What makes it special? (laughs) Nothing at all. Yeah. Uh,
0: He was disturbed by another, or by a number of other conclusions that heliocentrism kind of forces. For example how far away the stars would have to be and how big the stars would have to be if we conclude that they are discrete bodies and not something stuck to a, a sphere okay but the 1577 comet has eliminated the possibility of a sphere uh, or of a physical sphere right but he calculated that the, the <laughs> he calculated that the stars would have to be at least 71 times farther away than the earth is from the sun at least 71 well, he's not wrong. <laughs> he's not wrong. He also calculated that uh, some of the, sp- the stars that we were able to observe based on their brightness, based on their motion, uh, would have to be nearly as big as the entire orbit of the Earth. Which, again, not yeah. wrong. Yeah. He just couldn't conceive of that as being true, though. And that kind of forced this hybrid method of, of okay. still retaining the stars as being something on an outer shell and, and making this hybrid model work within it, you know, it, it was just bigger than his mind was capable of. I was going to say, is this just an
1: issue of him not being able to conceive of these sizes and distances? Yeah. Okay.
0: It, that's that's exactly like, what
1: it is. is. Is he or anyone else aware that the sun is a star at this point? Or is it just another ethereal body?
0: It's been proposed. They un- there, there is an understanding of the difference between the sun and the moon. Yeah with you know terms being used that would be very familiar to us uh you know when we learn about the the sun and moon as as children that the you know that the sun generates light and that the moon only reflects light that's why eclipses happen the way that they do right but that there's clearly something different about the sun that it's generating light and the other bodies which are only reflecting light and it must be in in a different class we're not referring to the sun in the same breath as the planets anymore for example okay um, haven't been for a very long time. I didn't necessarily mention that that transition. But that's and that's what I mean.
1: Like I know that we're away from that by this point. I just don't know if we're away to. Like I think we're still considering like the the stars, I think the distant stars as being their own entity.
0: Well, I think I think that's the conclusion that Brahe was looking into. Yeah, and I think that's the answer that scared him badly enough that, to reject yes. <laughs> it as a possibility because. Again, the, the the metaphysical consideration...
1: It, it brings up a lot of questions.
0: <laughs> a lot of really difficult questions. And, and for someone who is, is coming from that Renaissance framework, that early modern European framework of the Earth being the center of the universe and the Earth being special, mm-hmm. really uncomfortable questions. Yeah,
1: suddenly there's a possibility that we're all rotating around this star. And if all of those other stars also have things around mm-hmm. them, then... <laughs> Suddenly the universe is a lot bigger. Yes.
0: Well, and, and, and we haven't even gotten to the, the point in time where we're going to be considering things outside of our galaxy. So we, we've got a ways to go yet.
1: Sure. Actually, on that note, have we considered at this point the idea of the galaxy, the fact that we can sort of see the plane of dense star field?
0: That is considered no really, it, not really that different from Nebula at this point in time. Okay it's this idea that there are clouds in the ether basically
1: so we, we've observed it and made note of it just haven't really thought that it was oh, significant in any way
0: goodness yes I, I i don't imagine how anyone could look up at the at the sky and not and not see that there's something special about that
1: well it's yes, um, okay but however, we're, we're just considering a part of the star field and
0: yeah the, the nature of the milky way is not being considered any differently than any other region of the sky
1: okay that's what i'm asking
0: okay. um the uh the galactic plane doesn't act any differently than stars anywhere else in the sky. It's still fixed as far as these observers are concerned. Mm-hmm. It's still immovable as far as these observer- sure, observers yeah. are concerned. They're just seeing an uneven distribution of stars in the sky.
1: Yeah, but not, th- th- it, which they've noted, but don't really have any sort of theories about.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, explaining that concentration of stars is not, at this point, important to their their model of the universe.
1: Yeah. Sure, there are some places where stars are closer together than there are in other places.
0: Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I mentioned Kepler recently. Kepler actually worked for Brahe um, as a as an assistant and a, and a and a computer, by which I mean a person who runs <laughs> computations. As his Android assistant, yeah, which gotcha. is the which is the the definition of computer that we've lived <laughs> with for most of history. Beep boop. Pretty much. <laughs> And he, the two of them clashed constantly over like these it. models of the universe, Be, because uh, Kepler was a committed Copernican. He he believed strongly in this model of the sun at the center of the universe, and tried to convince Brahe to change his his, his hybrid model uh, to a fully heliocentric one. And Brahe just wouldn't have it. Kepler, who was you know a little bit younger than Tycho Brahe worked a little bit later, ended up coming up with uh, a number of observations that would once again prove revolutionary to understanding our solar system and to predicting the movement of the planets. But he actually wasn't able to uh, publish them until after Brahe's death in 1601 because a number of the observations that he was using were observations that Brahe had used and had forbidden him from using to try and prove a, a heliocentric version of the solar system. Oh, He's running into intellectual rights issues.
1: Yeah, this is... What? <laughs> it's proprietary sounds really, knowledge.
0: <laughs> sounds really familiar, doesn't yeah, it? It's, a little bit. Uh, pe- people don't change in, in a lot of ways. I mean, they do in a lot of really big ways, but in some small ways... Yeah. No. Uh, oh, Academia has always been a little bit petty. <laughs> Great, but sometimes petty. Yeah. Oh, boy. Kepler came up with what are known as the three laws of planetary motion and they are important because he managed to observe things that wouldn't be proven until much later. Theoretically the first was that they don't move in a circular path, right? Nothing moves perfectly circularly. And that's a vestige of uh, platonic models of the universe. Uh, We need to abandon them. In fact, Uh, the planets move in an ellipse where one of the points of the ellipse is the center of the sun. Mm -hmm. That's the first law. Yeah. The second is that uh, the, the speed of the planets change as it goes around. Um, But it does remain constant. If you consider the, the distance that it travels in its orbit as one of the uh, sides of a triangle terminating in the sun. Yeah. The area of that triangle will always be the same. So if it is closer to the sun and the area of the triangle uh grows broader at okay. the bottom, yeah. the planet will be moving faster. Okay. If it's further out from the sun, mm-hmm. And the, that bottom of the triangle is smaller,
1: narrower, yeah.
0: Narrower. it'll be moving slower. Okay. And what he's describing is is the change in velocity at the apogee and perigee right. of an, an orbit without actually understanding what that is, why it's happening, uh, how it works.
1: Yeah. Again... Like this is sort of rudimentary calculus, kind of
0: this is before calculus has been invented. I know, but... Which is amazing.
1: He's sort of like coming up with a uh, a differential model where the yeah. base of the triangle approaches zero. Yeah. Right?
0: He absolutely is, which is amazing <laughs> to me. And completely accidentally, he's just trying to describe the, the orbits of the planets. Yeah. And manages to do so with really good accuracy. The third law of planetary motion is just some math stuff for nerds that i don't really it's not germane to our discussions let's put it that way sure astronomers were very very excited i say that with all love to nerds um (laughs) but like honestly it's 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 about the the cube of motion of one planet is equal to the square of another type of motion with another planet i it's (laughs) i i, I tried for use. about five minutes to understand it and then i just gave up i, I used to know this and it made so much sense to me and now i don't remember <laughs> but yeah um yeah it's one of those com- it's one of those concepts that i can hold in my mi- mind for a moment or two and then it's just gone again yep kind of like the rules to cricket or something just gone again <laughs> read it as many times as i want it's just gone yeah it's important not to us to astronomers though very important
1: yeah it, it's all about relative distances and whatnot
0: <laughs> yes these astronomers are the last great astronomers to work without the benefit of uh, a telescope. Uh-huh. I, I just want you to think about that for a second. <laughs> Kepler created the three laws of planetary motion <laughs> yeah. with the naked eye.
1: By looking at a sky.
0: Now, to be fair, Kepler was working on the optics that would you know, work in a, a telescope. It's right. just that he didn't have a functional telescope at his disposal for a lot of this work. he he would later on Mm -hmm. um but uh when when he started out especially his work with brahe no telescope which brings us to galileo galileo is probably going to take us a little bit so i think this is a really good spot to take a quick break sure uh and when we come back things are going to get a little bit contentious
1: galileo and some other big names (laughs) you know it (laughs)
0: Hey guys, Uh, when I launched the Patreon for this show, I know I said I wouldn't be talking about it too often, I I don't want to make it a a huge thing, Um, but I do have some really exciting news, which is why I'm talking to you about it again so soon, which is that in under three months we hit our first goal of the show being supported entirely by listeners, people who are kind and generous enough to donate to the show are now officially covering all the costs that it takes to put the show up on the internet. So uh, I just wanted to say thank you very much to everyone who's donated. It's incredibly exciting and I-, I couldn't be more grateful. If supporting the show is something that you might be interested in, you can always head over to patreon.com HI101 and sign up for a monthly donation there. There's rewards at every level. Uh, even the $1 a month level gets you an outtake reel that I do every month. Just do you wanna point out that this month, Miller and I spent over five hours, it was nearly six hours recording both this topic and the April Fool's episode, and starts wearing on us a little bit. So that outtake reel is going to be dynamite. Uh, You might wanna check it out. So next goal will be uh, giving back something to the guests that come on and help me record this program every month, just out of the pure goodness of their hearts this show would be nothing without them. So I'd really like to say thank you in uh, a little bit more concrete way than just saying the words. Uh, and after that, I'm not sure. We'll find something that uh, will make the show better for everybody, you guys included, because you guys come first. So yeah, let's get back to astronomy. I'll stop bothering you about uh, fundraising things for now. But uh, once again, thank you everyone for all of your support in every form that it comes. <laughs> We're back on HI101 here with Kevin Miller. Hey. How's it going? Good. That's good. I I don't know if you call that a cliffhanger. I mean, I think this is just like a five-second break here. It's pretty short, usually. Yeah, it's not like this is the one coming out the next week, right? No, no, not at all. Uh, Galileo. Yes. Kind of a big deal in astronomy. Yeah. 1564 to 1642. Italian. Renaissance (laughs) man. Yep. Uh, Well-rounded education. Just everything. Painting. Uh, sculpting all of the traditional, like, arts. He was actually kept away from astronomy for a very long time because his father knew that being a physician made him a lot more money than being a mathematician. And so he kind of came to it a little bit later in life, but he was also just a straight-up genius. So No son of mine. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> However, I, I do have to kind of say, Galileo got a lot of help. In that, he was the first person to build a functioning telescope. Which doesn't seem like that big a deal. Except, you know, sometimes just take like a pair of binoculars. Go look around at the night sky and notice how much more stuff you can see when you're zoomed in.
1: It's one of those things where you can like literally stand in your backyard, look at the moon with some binoculars. Mm. And it's like, wow, that is a body that is orbiting the Earth.
0: Yeah, uh, to... (laughs) Tycho brahe's chagrin that's just a thing that's up in the sky that's yeah. just like anything down here it's just a long ways away and you can make it look closer
1: every once in a while if i'm driving home like a, during like a full moon at night i'm like man <laughs> the moon is cool mm-hmm. <laughs> we take it for granted i like the moon
0: no i know exactly what you mean absolutely it's cool galileo's telescope was about a 20 time zoom which is you know pretty good better than eyes uh better than eyes <laughs> By definition, better than ice. You're right.
1: 20 times better, roughly.
0: <laughs> but it helped them discover a whole bunch of stuff that's really important. Some of it's just like super cool, others are very, very scientifically important. Yeah. For example, he discovered that there are craters on the moon. Yep, that's super cool, but not necessarily incredibly important. To... I guess
1: we couldn't have inferred that just from appearance, right?
0: It's hard to tell. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Actually, his 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 training with uh, painting was uh, was instrumental in him recognizing what exactly he was seeing, because oh, shadow and <laughs> chiaroscuro. Yep. He was well trained in chiaroscuro, and he realized that the uh, the the rough edges of the the border of the light and dark on the moon yeah. were interrupted in patterns that were consistent with mountains.
1: Yeah, sort of these parabolic arcs that are coming off of like curved craters and whatnot.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, which is kind of an interesting little piece of trivia. It's a real Renaissance man. <laughs> he's a he's a he's the definition <laughs> literal um, Renaissance man. <laughs> the moon having craters is you know it's important for certain understandings i.e the fact that it is a physical body that's affected in the same way that the earth is but isn't going to necessarily make a massive dent in our uh, conception of the universe in an age where we're not entirely sure if the earth is at the center or the sun is at the center right yeah true however he did also discover uh that venus had phases similar to the moons Mm -hmm. that's super important it is that means that it's being, uh, it, it's traveling around the sun in a similar manner to the Earth traveling around, or sorry, the uh, the moon traveling around the Earth. Mm-hmm. That right there is basically the nail in the coffin for geocentrism. You can't have phases of Venus in a geocentric system.
1: Right. Yep.
0: He also discovered things like the rings of Saturn, which initially he thought were two other planets because they look kind of blobby in his telescope. Oh. Okay. He thought yeah. it was like a three-planet system. But I mean the the rings of Saturn, if you have a decent pair of binoculars, you can see it yourself. It's 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 actually quite amazing. He discovered the four principal moons of Jupiter. Right. Yeah. Uh, he was the first person to ever observe that. Is Jupiter the one that's got like sixty something moons? <laughs> oh yeah. All the gas giants have a ton of them, but but Jupiter in particular. Jupiter is is it's, it's nearly twice the size of the next largest uh, gas giant. It's it's huge.
1: Yeah. Jupiter is one of those interesting ones where um, we had talked about this at the last part where, God, who was it? It was a Copernicus with the like, three laws of planets. Yes. Uh, no, Kepler. Kepler. That's right. Um, where everything is sort of based on this point in the center of the sun. Yeah. But it's not strictly true because the planets have their own gravity as well that typically don't affect the sun a whole lot except for Jupiter. Right. Right. Where technically the solar system, or Jupiter and the sun, both orbit around this mutual point that's actually outside of the sun. Yeah, because Jupiter's so goddamn big.
0: Yeah, Jupiter is huge, <laughs> and and yeah, it, it does play havoc with the with the physics of it all, and we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's 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 a it's it's a good point. Fun fact. Um, but I, I mean the the ability to measure. The uh, orbits of the planets to that level of precision aren't quite there yet. No, no, and, not at all. <laughs> uh, the the, and Keplerian motion is is easily enough to uh, accurately model the 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 movement of the planets. Yeah, uh, for
1: like, and again, for most other planets, the uh, the effect is negligible. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. He also discovered sunspots, which this one always makes me like kind of queasy a little bit because like the idea is that we've got like the greatest mind of his time yeah you know discovering you know he, he's the one that discovered that gravity is, an, is a constant acceleration he's the one that discovered the moons of jupiter he's right. also the one that took his telescope and went i'm gonna stare directly into the sun i was
1: just like i guess how the sentence is gonna end <laughs> it's the dude who went on his on the tower of pisa with a pair of binoculars and stared at the sun
0: <laughs> which i mean just it's just ill-advised. Yeah, don't do that. Now, to be fair, if I was the first person to ever look through magnified optics, I'd yeah. probably, I, I might do the same.
1: I might too. Probably not to the, f- like, at that point, are you sure you're seeing spots? Are <laughs> you sure not just going blind?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, yeah, I might look away sooner, but <laughs> but I'd probably do it. Oh, I yeah. Think, I think I might.
1: <laughs> It'd be hard to resist the urge to.
0: Galileo also had a bit of a personality issue staring at the sun all day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's what caused it. issues. Nope. <laughs> he felt that heliocentrism was not counter to the Bible. He never actually published this, but he did express this sentiment in letters that were widely circulated in criticism of Galileo. All right. uh, yep. He felt that uh, the Bible was an authority on morals and faith, but not science, mm-hmm. which was considered heretical at the time. The, the Bible was considered the ultimate authority in all things and, and uh, biblical verses were being used to counter the idea of heliocentrism mm-hmm. all of this dust up over over the uh, model of the universe got him in a bit of trouble with the uh, with the inquisition who they just spent the last hundred years dealing with the the reformation and they're always on the lookout for some uh, from for some heresy and, and
1: yeah here one presents himself on a silver platter if
0: it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck yeah yeah, so in 1616, they uh, censored him and said, "Hey, quit talking about this stop, nonsense. Stop saying this stuff. <laughs> um, you, you, you need to, you need to cut it out." They allowed him to continue discussing it theoretically as long as he was denying the actual truth of that. Um, okay. <laughs> as soon as Galileo gets a slap on the wrist by the Inquisition, Brahe's uh, hybrid system becomes the darling of the astronomical uh, circles because it allows for all of the best explanations for retrograde planetary motion
1: without being a direct
0: without without specifically putting the sun at the center of the universe yeah so it it kind of is the worst of all worlds but hey um at least you won't get sent to prison for it
1: hey big deal
0: galileo chose to just you know what i'm I'm fine. I won't talk about it at all. He just kind of walked away from the whole thing. He didn't feel like making a big deal out of it, which was probably wise on his part. I mean, you don't I want to don't think that I there. would have
1: done any different later, really.
0: Yeah. Uh, but a new Pope was elected in 1623 uh, Pope Urban the eighth. And, and when he had been a Cardinal, he actually opposed uh, the condemnation of Galileo. He didn't feel like it was fair and was actually uh, something of a friend, something of a fan, Okay. Uh, kind of liked what Galileo was saying. Now he didn't necessarily, he wasn't necessarily completely convinced of the heliocentric nature of the universe. He certainly wasn't going to endorse it. I don't imagine. <laughs> no, but he was also kind of curious about it. Uh huh. Um, yeah. As as Pope, he still kind of had to put the Earth at the center of the universe. But he was open minded. Yeah, and and he actually commissioned a book from. Galileo there's this form of academic writing that's prevalent at this time and it's actually left over from classical times called uh, a dialogue which isn't exactly a debate it's not like an uh, an argument mm-hmm. it's this idea of two people who hold disparate views uh, discussing those views with each other in an attempt to mutually work towards a single conclusion the idea being that that conclusion will hold, more of the truth um, because if two people who disagree in the beginning can come to the same agreement in the end, right. then it's sort of distilled the truth out of the matter. Okay. It's not a perfect system. I wouldn't imagine. <laughs> um, but it's got a long history to it and is often used to uh, great effect, especially in philosophy. And it's not its not entirely dead. And that's the system that you'll find a lot of secretion dialogues or, or concepts uh, expressed. Right. Because we don't really have... Direct writings from Socrates. We have writings from Plato, using Socrates as one of the uh, parties in a dialogue, um, discussing a concept with another person. So, the problems with dialogues are that while it's not technically supposed to be an argument, it is two people disagreeing. Yeah, (laughs) uh, which is a it's a fine needle of thread. Mm -hmm. And Galileo decided to take on this commission under the understanding that. Uh, one of the viewpoints that was being expressed was the official one of the church and of, of Urban the Eighth in particular. Okay. The, the book was going to be called The Two Chief World Systems.
1: So in this system of writing, is it actually written by two people or is, is Galileo playing devil's advocate with himself?
0: Uh, the latter.
1: Okay. It's one person
0: writing it. The the classical idea of it was taking an actual dialogue and writing down both sides of the dialogue in the book. Mm -hmm. This was a form of writing that, you know, today if you're going to do academic writing, you're essentially uh, making a thesis and then defending the thesis against an imaginary uh, critic, right? Right, yes. Um, In this, you're writing the critic into the book itself. Okay. So it's not that far off, but... At, at, at least conceptually it's supposed to be more neutral than that
1: i see so in like a persuasive essay you're trying to prove a point but here there's someone like actively
0: arguing that point yes and i mean this comes out of that scholastic uh tradition of trying to make sure things that don't necessarily work together can mm-hmm. be made to work together right right um the, the conclusion is that um there's always a synthesis of truth and that that truth is better than the two viewpoints that were started with whether or not that's actually true the problem is that this dialogue isn't about an obscure uh metaphysical point it's about the actual reality of the universe yeah and galileo does have a stake in this yeah and science doesn't care what your opinion is exactly what's more because he has a stake in it he makes the other person in the dialogue uh the pope who he disagrees with and basically has himself winning the argument
1: straw manning him
0: what's and even worse <laughs> even worse the name of the avatar for the pope the, oh no. the, the name of the person supporting geocentrism in this book yeah. is simplicio
1: oh good <laughs>
0: who galileo states in the introduction is named after an actual uh, greek philosopher named simplicitus simplicio is the is the italian translation of that okay however it has exactly yeah. exactly the we connotation you about. think <laughs> it has and simplicio is representing urban the age
1: this is like a very goofus and gallant
0: very much so <laughs> it's not hard to imagine how the pope felt imagine there was a book uh that you were in and you were named simplicio yeah. and that's how he feels yeah he was angry I'm having a conversation
1: it's me versus stinky steve
0: Yeah, basically. Hey. (laughs) Hey. Don't (laughs) stay. Like, I... I, There's a lot of people who say that Galileo felt blindsided when the Pope was upset by all of this. That may have been true. Maybe Galileo was one of those kind of eccentric uh, savants that doesn't really understand how human interaction... I don't buy that, personally.
1: No, because he's already been rebuked and has basically backed off, right? I, I just
0: I just buy don't premise, buy that though. he didn't realize that Simplicio might ruffle a few feathers. I don't buy that. <laughs> I don't buy it either. I I think he kind of knew what he was doing here. And this immediately goes before the 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 Inquisition again, which is not any surprise whatsoever. No. And initially Galileo says, No, I, I wrote this entirely neutrally. I don't know what you're talking about. And then eventually kind of does this whole like Fine, I suppose if someone was to approach this book with a certain viewpoint, they could come away with the idea that heliocentrism is the more correct of the two models. So this is a
1: combination of, one, victim blaming, and two, I'm sorry you got offended. A little bit.
0: Galileo, I, I, I mean, Galileo is made out to be the victim of the church, very very often when discussing early science and i'm not i'm not saying he wasn't hard done by i am going to go ahead and say that i he's not completely innocent <laughs> it's not as though he was a martyr here. yeah he he did not fall upon the sword of his beliefs he kind of stirred some stuff up he hmm hmm i don't want to say he had a coming to him and yet maybe maybe he shouldn't have called the pope simplicio in his book he's an instigator hi there's here's a book it's about two fictional characters uh it's it's one named uh the great galileo yep. no relation to me and the other one is Poop. this is a fully neutral book yeah <laughs> the great oh, galileo is eight feet tall and has so many muscles
1: yep he looks great <laughs> guys if I, I i drew this picture here in index b in appendix c he,
0: he has more abs than any man alive
1: yeah and here's an income poop and as many stink lines
0: please observe the flies Yep. Yeah. figure b um yeah he shouldn't have done that maybe maybe that no. was a bad idea so in 1633 he's condemned again by the inquisition this time there's three things that they ask of him number one the dialogue is banned no one's allowed to read the dialogue they also go ahead and ban all of his other works which seems like overkill but don't don't hurt the pope's feelings man
1: no it, it, i mean it seems like overkill but it also seems like they were just happy to ban things around that too.
0: well i i mean it's all other you know they're, they're also concerned about heretical undertones and things like that there there is that aspect to it yeah but i mean there is some there's some direct ad hominem stuff going yeah, there's, on here. There's
1: some, some hurt feelings.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is this is not this is not a grand attack on science. This is an attack on Galileo, and he maybe he maybe stirred it up a little bit. Sure. Um, number two, uh, imprisonment. This was commuted the day after to house arrest, so he couldn't leave his enormous, uh, well-equipped uh, villa with all its servants, and you know. It's, he wasn't rotting in a five by five cell. Let's yeah, put it like that a way. white collar
1: crime.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is some, yeah, yeah, for sure. He he did okay. Yeah. He was allowed to receive visitors. He ate fine. He drank fine. He did all right. And three, he was re- forced to recant uh, the doctrine of heliocentrism. Right. Which he did. Mm-hmm. And then this cool little story comes into play, which may be apocryphal, but sometimes apocryphal stories tell the story better than the actual evidence that we have. Go for it. As soon as he finished recanting heliocentrism, he supposedly said four words, and yet it moves. Yeah. Referring to the motion of the earth. I've heard this. Which is a great, it's just like a nice little like, yeah, well, screw you too.
1: (laughs) Yep. No further questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's gonna show up I, I mean it it was already a story as early as the 1640s so it's not it's not like this is something that came up in like 1957 or something yeah, yeah. um still it, it's hard to take something like a uh, like a snide remark out of the side of your mouth and and properly attribute it yeah. but this one's more likely than it is not likely. We're gonna leave Galileo there. I mean, the the discoveries that he made are really important. The telescope especially is very important. Expanding the tools with which we can observe uh, the universe around us is key to the expansion of astronomy. That can't be understated. The next big name that comes up is Sir Isaac Newton. Yay. And we're actually not going to spend too much time on Isaac Newton, unfortunately, because his contributions are very, very, very important. And also very, very, very technical, and I don't want to spend too much time on it. Yep. As much as I'm sure you would love
1: to. No, that that's completely fair. Isaac Newton,
0: 1642 to 1727. Maybe you heard of him. He invented gravity. Born on Christmas. <laughs> he was, that's true. Yeah, Isaac Newton is interesting in that the three laws that he created were developed entirely in order to figure out whether or not Kepler was right. He was investigating Keplerian motion.
1: Yeah, the sort of easy version of this story is that he kind of developed his theories and books and whatnot on a dare? On a bet? More, more or less. Yeah.
0: Um, and, and what's more, developed calculus in, yeah. in the process.
1: Yeah, he's like, yeah, I answered your question. I just had to invent calculus to do it.
0: Yeah, so... Here's, here's an entire branch of mathematics. Turns out that uh, Kepler is actually right. So mm-hmm. he used his law of gravity, brought Kepler's theories back to first principles, which is a big deal in proving anything mathematically, right? Mm-hmm. So he took his, his law of gravity, he applied it to planetary motion, and when he did so, uh, came up with uh, an, an ellipse that had one of its focal points at the sun and another in a, a point in space, mm-hmm. which is exactly what's pre- predicted by the first law. He also determined that a gravitational pull would cause the variation in planetary velocity at various points along that ellipse. Also proving Kepler right, the second law, Um, again, over a hundred years after Kepler came up with this stuff. Right. But being proved correct is just as important to astronomy as uh, finding an explanation for observation. It's still that pull between observation and theory. Yep. So this was a, a theory that he was, that was developed in uh, reaction to observation, and then another theory that was able to uh, prove the better observations that were enabled by that theory.
1: Right. It's so this just this a,
0: chain of improvement. Yeah,
1: this is a case of he comes up with a theory, he, he proves it, and then 100 years later, we have peer review.
0: <laughs> Essentially, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good summary. And also, basically, once, once Newton comes along, That is the death of geocentrism. Oh, yeah. You can't have Newton's laws. You can't have modern physics without putting the sun at the center of the solar system. It doesn't, it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this is a good hundred years after Galileo. Uh, He never really got to see this whole thing go down, but he was proven correct in the end. And yeah, in in the process, Newton invents basically, basically modern physics, the discipline of calculus, and makes giant strides in our understanding of optics in order to do it. Right. Just, just to do it, just because someone said that no one could prove that Kepler was right, and he said I can.
1: Yeah, and the optics even breaks down into like uh, the like composition of light and so on, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. At some point, I'd love to do the scientific revolution, specifically the the era around Newton at the Royal Academy, and talk about all the things that happened there. I would do that one because <laughs> I actually had a, a listener that asked for it at one point, and and I've I've been meaning to, oh. uh, eventually take. Well, up by on all it. means, <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll let you know sometime. But the the number of things that just kind of happen within like a thirty year period is just mind yeah leap after leap (laughs) yeah you you get Leibniz uh rolled in there and the and the uh rivalry between the two or in in some accounts lack of rivalry Uh, yeah
1: and uh edmund halley up in the mix
0: (laughs) yep yep oh there's there's tons of of famous scientists that are involved there Uh, hook is a big deal at that point in uh mechanization and uh yeah anyways it, it it gets real crazy in, in Britain at that point oh, yeah. in time. Right, we'll quickly gloss over this. <laughs> we can kind of move on from Isaac Newton because really that is going to be the gold standard for the, the physical model of the universe for uh, a couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been it's going to be a while before it's actually uh, changed or even further cemented, iterated on. <laughs> and it, it, and it turns out that Newton's model is good enough to uh explain our solar system to a degree of accuracy that it almost becomes academic to further refine which doesn't mean that it's not worth refining further
1: oh no of course
0: but the idea that 300 years ago someone basically put a button on it is is pretty interesting
1: yeah well and and this is uh i don't remember if it's directly from this or if it was much later but uh didn't someone use these models of gravitation to basically predict the existence of Uranus?
0: Yes, yeah, and 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 we will be getting to well, I, you know, that's that's basically next on next my list.
1: <laughs> Sorry, good As segue. segue. <laughs> I,
0: I was like, oh, I knew this was coming soon. Yeah, yeah. In 1781, actually, uh, an astronomer named William Herschel discovered Uranus because they they he figured out that the path for saturn wasn't quite right mm-hmm. like it, it wasn't quite matching up to what it, it should be it was close but um and and it was theorized that there was another large body out there that was uh, affecting the gravitational or or was was having a gravitational effect on saturn and uranus was the first planet that could not be uh observed by the naked eye right now, interestingly enough, we're pretty sure that Galileo first observed it in
1: 1616. Okay, with his uh, 20x telescope. Yes,
0: which is enough to see it. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about it is that that exact date that uh, Galileo recorded, what we're pretty sure is Uranus in his in his uh, diary, Yeah, Uranus was just going into retrograde, okay. which is the point in retrograde where planets appear oh, to stand stop. still in <laughs> yeah. their path. So he recorded it in the sky in the same spot a couple of times thought he had discovered a new star recorded it and then sometime later lost track of it it wasn't where it was supposed to be anymore and he kind of went that's weird and moved on with his life (laughs) however because he identified it as a star and not as a planet he doesn't get any credit for it right but 1781 william herschel does
1: okay so this is one of these stories where i'm like was it someone who was like a couple hundred years after newton or was it someone who was around that same time period because there was the story of galileo
0: yeah not not that long after newton really no no um,
1: in the grand scheme obviously
0: but like i i always enjoy taking some of these like science discoveries and putting them in context of like where we are in history 1781 yeah the united states is five years old like this is this is just before the french revolution And we're discovering uranus. If I remember
1: my Hamilton soundtrack properly, so this was the Battle of Yorktown.
0: (laughs) You're, 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 yeah, you're, you're correct. Um, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is not long after the, uh, the, the French defeat at the Plains of Abraham. This is a, this is too old for us to be discovering far out gas giants.
1: No, and this one's interesting because it's, it's, As far as I know, the first time we discovered a planet through theory and not through observation. Mm -hmm. Like we discovered it because we went looking for it because we had a model of the universe that predicted that it would be there.
0: Yeah. Neptune was even further predicted before it was actually discovered. Um, It took them a long time like modeling out the the, the path of it Uh, because once again, Uranus wasn't quite enough to or or wasn't in quite the right spot to not have one more major gravitational pull okay. out there somewhere. So
1: so this was still based on the Saturn perturbation. Uh, no,
0: on the uh, on the Uranus one. They, oh, okay. they iterated through Uranus on this.
1: So one. they they predicted Uranus through Saturn, but once they found Uranus they're like, "Hey, wait, this also isn't right."
0: <laughs> Correct. And and they predicted Neptune. There was actually a bit of a argument over who predicted it better. And, I think and,
1: I've heard the story.
0: Well, <laughs> There's this thing especially around this time period where you know in the in the early 19th century where uh, a Frenchman will make a discovery and an Englishman will make a discovery and they'll be around the same time yeah. and probably independently of each other and then everyone will argue over why um, you know, whoever did it first will argue that they got it and whoever did it second will argue that the first one didn't count for some reason Okay. to try and like keep up this national pride race thing right, in right, science. Right. Egyptology was especially bad for that, but uh, yeah. be that as it may, the, 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 planet was actually first observed in 1846 by Urban Le, Levarrier. and you know, they, they continue that convention of naming the planets after Roman gods, which is kind of great. There were a couple near misses on that one.
1: I've heard. They, uh,
0: <laughs> they nearly named Neptune uh, Le- Le Verrier, uh which would be a terrible name. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he doesn't. Yeah. No.
1: I mean, I don't know if I want a planet named after me necessarily.
0: <laughs> then, we got Pluto. then we've got Pluto in 1930 by a guy named Clyde Tombaugh. There was a theorized Planet X for a very long time. There were still people saying Neptune's not enough there's got to be something out there and pluto was just kind of the first of the these kind of exoplanets that Mm -hmm. uh that were discovered and it got kind of stuck with a lot more credit than necessarily it deserved it's not that much bigger than a lot of other bodies in that region originally we believed that it was seven times more massive than the earth Uh, to account for all the pull that it must have been putting on Neptune. And I mean, it's so far out, we have no idea. This is the 1930s. We've got better tools. Uh, But still, we figured that's how big it had to be to affect Neptune's orbit that way. Mm -hmm.
1: Because Neptune's orbit is reversed, right?
0: Uh, Is that the one? No, Neptune's orbit is not reversed. I think what you're thinking of is that Pluto's orbit is inclined and it comes within Neptune's orbit for part of it and outside of Neptune's orbit for part of it. Maybe you're thinking of that Neptune is on its side. Yeah. Its axis is tilted 90 degrees. Yes, that's okay. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. And it actually spins. Neptune's revolution. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the, the planet itself spins in the opposite direction. That's what as I was thinking of, yeah. But uh, no, it, it still moves around the solar system in the same direction. And yeah, the modern era of, of of astronomy is is a lot of it is about developing better tools with which to observe. I mean, once you've got a telescope and you just keep building better telescopes, You get to a point where there's only so much you can see Mm -hmm. um, before you get to, you know, launching telescopes into outer space, which eventually we do. But scientists are also going to realize that we're really limiting ourselves to a very narrow band of the electromagnetic spectrum when we're using optical telescopes. And so we start expanding them into radio telescopes, into uh, x-ray telescopes, into gamma-ray telescopes. Mm -hmm. We develop something that's known as spectroscopy, which is a really interesting technology. And is essential to our understanding of everything outside of our, outside of our, uh, solar system, well, even within our solar system. But
1: basically it's discovered that the things that we can't see.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's discovered that light running through certain gases, like the, the vapor, uh, uh, the, the gaseous version of various elements creates bands. If you take the light and split it up into spectrums. And so just by splitting up light coming from a body and observing where the bands are, you can tell it's chemical composition which is really useful.
1: It is and this is one of these tools that we're using these days when we discover new exoplanets uh, where we can see them pass in front of their star we can get the the light refracted through the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and sort of then determine from you know sometimes like hundreds and thousands of light years away okay yeah. here's a planet we've that we've discovered mm-hmm. it's got this in its atmosphere
0: yeah it's it's quite remarkable it, it's it's very very powerful as a as a tool of, of of quickly learning a lot about something that is very small and very dim you also see a, a pretty major opening of the discipline to women even more so than most science disciplines which is kind of interesting a lot of that is kind of through a backdoor method which is that human computers Mm -hmm. so people doing you know algebra calculations to to crunch all these numbers that astronomers need that tends to be a traditionally female role and so you have all of these women working on calculations for these male astronomers and once in a while you get one of them that has a knack for something and usually forces her own way up the uh the pecking order into a position where she can actually make her own discoveries. Interesting.
1: So yeah, they've got all the raw data yeah, (laughs) and then they can sort of make their own theories from there.
0: Yeah. And, and, and there's, there's, there's certainly, you know, it's not only people working in calculator roles or, or computing roles, but um, that, that seems to be a, a very common starting point. Annie Jump Cannon was a, was an astronomer who lived from 1863 to 1941. She was hearing impaired and that, took a lot of pressure off of her socially in a certain way uh in that she wasn't necessarily expected to uh marry and have kids because people back then just assumed that deaf people would never get married because yeah. no one would love them i guess yeah. man people all time you're just not <sighs> you make me so mad sometimes uh, yeah uh... She got to stay at the lab working long hours because that's what she enjoyed doing. She was so good at calculating stars that she could do them or or uh, classifying stars that she could do uh, three stars a minute oh, wow. just by looking at them. And Annie Jump Cannon helped develop the Harvard Classification Scheme, which is today the gold standard for classifying stars. Okay, this is the first time we're iterating on it in a thousand years? This is the first time we're iterating on it in over 2,000 oh, years. Wow. And what is added is a letter scale. I believe there's seven different letters that classify stars by their spectral profile. Okay. And because this is a new technology, this has never been done for any star at all. Okay. So they're starting from scratch, really, building Mm -hmm. this profile. Annie Jump Cannon, in her life, single-handedly classified around 350,000 stars. Good God. Wow. That's so many stars. (laughs) Why don't we talk about Annie Jump Cannon? Yeah, come on. Huh. Uh, I'd also like to point out Hen- uh, Henrietta Swan Levitt, who lived 1868 to 1921. She developed a method of calculating the distance to extremely di- distant, like extragalactic, distant bodies. Okay. Using something called a Cepheid star, which is basically a pulsar. It's a it's a star with a, yeah. with a, a changing uh, intensity at a at a regular interval Mm -hmm. and she she used a she she found a way of using that to measure you know distances in the light years and 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 thousands and hundreds of thousands of light years which is incredibly important to uh, modern astronomy
1: sure and that's where we start getting into actually being able to determine other galaxies are what they are
0: <laughs> well i mean that's that's the next next big step in cosmology right uh in in april 26th 1920 there's something called the great debate between two astronomers harlow shapley and uh curtis and the debate is is our galaxy which we now understand is is a thing yeah is our galaxy the entirety of the universe are there galaxies outside of our own
1: mm-hmm.
0: and Shapley argued that the Milky Way was the entirety of the universe. There couldn't possibly be anything outside of the universe. And this was based mainly on uh, a galaxy called the Pinwheel Galaxy. And they had measured the Doppler effect of it spinning. Mm Mm-hmm. And they had taken it and extrapolated how quickly the the galaxy would have to be spinning, and realized that it would actually violate relativity, like oh. it would violate the the speed of light, Important. which is is now a thing that was published in 1912 by by Einstein, who used it to prove that uh, that Newton had been right about Kepler's laws. Mm-hmm. So we've got several generations of geniuses here telling us that no we know what's going on out there yeah.
1: I, I believe the phrase the shoulders of giants
0: <laughs> that is uh, <laughs> and and it's, it's a very apt phrase it's 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 very accurate the problem was their observations of the pinwheel galaxy had been incorrect mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was malevolent it was it was a, a, an honest mistake yeah. but that evidence didn't actually do anything to back up the the, the existence of or, or the lack of existence of, of galaxies outside our own. Only four years later, Edwin Hubble, using, um, using Henrietta Swan-Levitt's uh, Cepheid method, mm-hmm. managed to prove that the d- disputed galaxies were far too far away um, to be within our own galaxy, mm-hmm. that they had to be uh, galaxies outside of our own. There's a reason that we call that big telescope the Hubble telescope. It's named after him. It's an incredibly important milestone in astronomy. He also used something called redshift to prove that the universe is expanding uh, more or less equally in all directions in 1929. Redshift is basically this idea that the, the Doppler effect exists on light as well as sound. Right. The Doppler effect is the thing that makes the police sirens go from high to low as it passes you, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a moving source of, of regularly intervaled waves. And uh, when something is moving towards you, it amplifies it it makes it seem uh higher in frequency than it is yeah. when it's moving away it's lower in frequency yeah. so anything moving away from you in in terms of light is shifted lower towards mm-hmm. the red end of the spectrum that's all red shift is
1: yeah uh, the easy way to demonstrate the doppler effect is on like a body of water mm-hmm. where like if you have uh you know you drop a pebble in it and you'll see the ripples kind of radiating out at the same frequency. Mm-hmm. But if you were to like drive a boat through water, the the wavelengths are very short at the where in the direction that the boat is heading and very long in its wake. Yeah. Where that comes into the redshift is sort of the the, the, the wavelength on the light where purple or violet has a very short wavelength, red mm-hmm. has a longer one. So we can tell that objects are moving away from us because we're getting this redshift.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now this whole thing is really interesting because two years before an astronomer named uh, Georges george lemaitre had proposed that if you observe our universe the only conclusion that actually makes sense is that the universe is constantly expanding and that the natural conclusion of that is that at one point the universe was a single finite point yep he was proposing the big bang theory yes it is also interesting that Georges lemaitre was also a jesuit priest and this explanation, while backed up by observation and, and sound science, he also saw as an affirmation, at least to some extent, of, of the idea of creation. Now, he didn't go looking for evidence of creation. In fact, he was very adamant that his astronomical work and his, uh, his life as a, as a priest were extremely separate, to the point that when the Pope heard about this and mm-hmm. went, hey, a priest just proved that the universe was created, uh, he got angry and wrote the Pope angry, which we learned earlier. This episode yeah. isn't a good idea. Yeah, um,
1: why would you call me a priest in that sentence? <laughs> it has nothing to do with it.
0: Which I, which I, I think is is um, a really interesting position to take. But the the Jesuit order has always had a really interesting relationship with the sciences and with education, uh, in that they're uh, they're usually pretty pretty chill about not merging them uh, when they don't need to be merged. Yeah. Which is fair, <laughs> I, I think, is a is a reasonable way of uh, of approaching things. But in any case, uh, two years later, Hubble proved him right with the redshift theory because if everything is always expanding in every direction, that mm-hmm. uh, means it, it had, had to, to come somewhere. <laughs> the, the Big Bang theory was disputed for years, yeah. uh, even after Hubble proved it correct. The, in fact, the name of the Big Bang theory was a pejorative that was uh, given to the theory uh, in the '40s by a, a radio announcer. It was kind of like, you know, look at this guy with his big bang theory, his big explosion started the universe. What's up with this guy? Uh, I roll. But further tools develop, um, mostly those other bands of the electromagnetic spectrum that we were talking about. And then in the late 60s and the early 70s, a new generation of theoretical physicists started validating uh, the mathematics behind the idea of singularities, which is where both our understanding of the of the big bang theory and uh, a lot of our understanding of, of black holes and other anomalies comes from, this is where especially Stephen Hawking was doing a lot of his most groundbra- groundbreaking work. Mm-hmm. And so it turned out that our theory kind of caught up to match what we had observed, you know, again, this interplay between the two always very important. There's one more discovery that I want to mention before we kind of wrap things up. Cause we're getting pretty close to like really modern, really recent stuff, yep. which is, uh, more complicated. I, I'm kind of wondering what
1: what things that I know that we haven't discussed that are too recent.
0: I, I don't remember what actual
1: discovery days are.
0: Well, I mean, when you get into things like quasars and pulsars, black holes, uh, that, that stuff, a lot of it is kind of iffy on the observable yeah, side of things. <laughs> yeah. It gets very, very theoretical. And while our theory seems to be very, very good, the further you stray from being able to support it uh observationally the the trickier it gets right right and i mean i don't particularly want to have a conversation about things like string theory and quantum mechanics um at least not on this podcast it is really interesting stuff but that's not what people are here for sure i'm gonna play uh, a sound clip right here actually i'm gonna insert it when i'm editing this so we'll take a quick break That sound is the sound that every single radio telescope in the world picks up no matter where they're pointed. Often they pick up other things too. Right. But
1: at there is level.
0: <laughs> always this, no matter where it is. If you point it at uh, nothing in the sky, at the, at the darkest region of space that we know of, uh-huh. you will get this sound. When you point it at something, you have to scrub this sound out to figure out what that thing is. That sound is what's known as the cosmic microwave background radiation. It was discovered in 1964 by uh, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson. And that sound is important because it is the sound of the Big Bang. That is radiation that is left over from a point just after the universe uh, was created, at least in its current iteration, when a whole bunch of particles dropped from a higher energy state to a lower one, they all released this microwave radiation into the universe mm-hmm. uh, in a perfect blanket. And when you look at images of this, the entire uh, universe is just uh, one flat sheet of radiation in behind everything else. Mm-hmm. This is the best proof we have that the Big Bang happened. We have lots of other uh, very technical uh, physics-minded proof that uh, I'm not going to get into because, frankly, I don't understand any yeah, of it.
1: Yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> there
0: are a handful of people in the world that do properly.
1: It's, it's pretty bleeding edge at this point.
0: <laughs> but we are confident, astronomers are confident, that that is the sound of the beginning of the universe, uh, which is kind of off-putting a little bit.
1: It's not the most comforting noise. No, and it's apparently been echoing for, like, 14 billion years.
0: <laughs> yeah, and... You know, at, at this point, we've got a, a, a sense of the universe that is bigger than we're ever going to be able to see because of the expansion of the universe. And mm-hmm. and we, we understand very well that we are on a, a, fringe, a fringe arm of a, a galaxy that is one of billions and billions. And, and, and this argument that started with, is, is the Earth at the center of the universe, has been left behind a long yeah. time ago. I
1: mean, in retrospect, it seems, you know woefully ignorant childish
0: there's uh, yeah and and looking back i think i think understanding where we are today almost helps with an understanding of how we thought uh, a series of nested crystalline spheres was a a comforting worldview yeah uh, it seems much neater much simpler It um, certainly makes you feel special <laughs> yes yes but but also in control yeah and and that's that's one of the nicer things about it all of that is gone. Well, like, yeah. we've left that behind hundreds of years ago.
1: It's less comforting to think of yourself as an insignificant speck in in a vastness of time, on a pale blue dot in an insignificant galaxy. You
0: know that is accurate. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, but but we've come so far uh, from from those initial observations, and yet astronomy continues to be one one of the one of the purer sciences in a lot of ways, in that it has two pillars and it has always had those two pillars observation theory mm-hmm. as long as the observation supports the theory it's good as long as the theory supports the observation it's good that's so fascinating to me yeah um the the ways we observe and the ways we theorize have changed so much but it's still there and it, you know our, our universe just keeps getting a little bit bigger all the time oh and sure our understanding of it keeps getting bigger all the time I think that's where we stop, both because we've kind of reached the literal edges of our universe.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and this is where I wanted to, like, say, like, there's the bleeding edge stuff that we're kind of on the theory point of right now that we don't even have proper terms for, Mm -hmm. like dark matter and dark energy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, both, both because we reached that, that that edge and because I've really reached my edge of understanding on a lot of this yeah. stuff.
1: I can kind of explain in broad terms where those ideas are coming from, but it, oh, sure. to, to even call them dark matter and dark energy kind of infers that we know more about them than we do, which is almost nothing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because no.
1: dark, dark matter is the idea that we can kind of account for like 20% of the mass mm-hmm. in the Milky Way.
0: Yeah. It's... And
1: we don't know what the other 80% is.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting stuff. It's also it's also very uh undetermined at this point in time. So yeah. that's that's I, I'm I'm fine with uh with ending at the point where we're we're on uh I was gonna say sure footing, but I'm not even sure that's true.
1: No, I don't think we can ever really say we're on sure footing with this, but uh yeah, the other one, dark energy, is the idea of that we've ex- we've observed the uh expansion of the universe. Mm-hmm. And then there are two theories based on that. Like, are we accelerating or are we decelerating? Mm-hmm. Like, does the universe eventually squeeze back down to a single point and then we have another big bang? Yeah. Or does it just expand forever? Yeah. And uh, the what's happening is we're accelerating. Yeah. <laughs> Propelled by what we're codenaming as dark energy. Which yeah. means that everything will eventually get further and further apart until we can't observe the universe anymore. Yeah. And then everything will crumble to entropy and we'll have what we call the heat death of the universe. Mm -hmm. So
0: cherish those comforting (laughs) thoughts. It's accurate as far as I know. And I mean, you know, we're not even, we're not even comfortable with the idea that there's four fundamental forces at this point in physics, let alone,
1: you
0: know, it's, 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 it's gotten, it's gotten buck wild out there. It has. Um, So yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good picture of how astronomy has changed over the years. Yep. Um, a little less comfortable, but a lot more interesting. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, I, I think that, that search for meaning has always been kind of implicit in, in astronomy. and oh, sure. Uh, the idea of, of someone 5,000 years ago looking at the stars and wondering where we came from and, and someone doing the same today is, uh, in its own way, kind of comforting in the, in the links that it creates with you know, our own history, so.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's all about kind of stepping outside your comfort zone and exploring Mm -hmm. that final frontier.
0: (laughs) There you go. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. Uh, It was really a pleasure having you here.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: We've come a very long way from Stonehenge and lunar calendars and ethereal spheres, and While we may understand more about the universe around us, we certainly have more to learn. But while the theory has grown and changed and become nearly unrecognizable to the ancients, the emotional response to watching the night sky is a common thread for humanity. Having a better grasp on what's out there hasn't done a thing to change its beauty. Next time on HI101, we're going to try to fix grade 7 history for Canadians everywhere by talking about New France. That episode will be up on May 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been (laughs) HI101.